back when Australia was first discovered, um, explorers went there and they discovered a very strange animal. It was an animal that was a mammal which laid eggs, spent some time in the water, and spent some time on land. It had a broad, flat tail, webbed feet, and a bill similar to a duck. Upon returning to England, the explorers told the people there about this animal, but no one believed them. They thought it was a hoax and that they were just trying to pull their leg. So the explorers returned to Australia. They got a pelt. They basically killed one, brought the pelt back as evidence, and the people still refused to believe. They thought that they somehow, I guess, sewed together a pelt and they still wouldn't believe it. They thought it was a hoax. In spite of the evidence, they disbelieved because they didn't want to believe that such an animal existed. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a man who had to decide whether or not he would believe something, all while his daughter was suffering from a life-threatening illness. So our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 49 through 56. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning with her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So for those who are new or this is their first time, we've been working on a series going through the Gospel of Luke. At this point, Jesus is ministering all throughout the region. Um, Previously to this, he had calmed the storm. He had healed a demon-possessed man. And now now as he's traveling, we see even more miracles performed. In this specific section of Scripture, he's performing two miracles. Today we'll be focusing on one And next week, Pastor Theo will pick up with the other. But my first point this morning is pretty simple. It's simply, just believe. But before we get too far into the text and fleshing out this point, we need to back up a minute to verses 40 through 41. These verses say, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, I've read this passage many times before, and as a kid, I've heard this story a lot. But every time I've heard it, I always tend to focus at the end of the story. I mean, it's a pretty good ending, and we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But as I was preparing for the message, I was really stuck on this one part at the beginning, the part about how big of a deal it was for Jairus to go to Jesus in the first place. It says in verse 49 that Jairus was a synagogue leader. This meant that he would be in charge of services, in charge of taking care of the facilities. He made sure people were appointed to pray, read scriptures, and give the teaching or the sermon. He also was responsible for overseeing all the elders in the synagogue. He was a pretty important guy. 
This person was also someone who usually had a tremendous reputation as well as wealth. And also during this time, this is the time of the Roman Empire, where they required people to worship the Roman gods. And many times they would even force them to sacrifice to them. One big exception to this, though, was with the Jews. You see, when the Jews had been conquered by the Roman Empire, they made a deal with the Romans. They said that the Jewish leaders would do everything they could to maintain peace and loyalty to the Romans. In exchange, the Jews would be granted freedom to worship their God and not have the same requirements on them as the rest of the empire. And the Jewish leaders took this very seriously. They didn't want their way of life to be taken away. That's one reason why they didn't look too kindly upon this man named Jesus who was spreading this new message claiming to be the Messiah. This would upend everything that they had taught and in turn cause there to be a risk to the shaky agreement they had made with their Roman oppressors. So this is why it was such a big deal for Jairus to go to Jesus for help. He was risking his career. He was risking his reputation. He was risking his wealth and even his safety by going to Jesus. The very man that the Jewish leaders were literally plotting to kill. When Jairus was leaving his home to find Jesus, his daughter was barely clinging on to life. She was so sick that she was about ready to die. This was his last option. He knew that Jesus was the only one who would be able to save his daughter. Even though he was taking a risk, Jairus was stepping out in faith. He believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. And Jesus did go with them. He was planning on going with them to heal his daughter. And it looked like things were going to be okay after all. But then Jesus was delayed, which you'll hear about next week. Well, just take a minute to imagine Jairus' frustration. He knew that every second he waited mattered. Every second was another second that his daughter could be getting closer to death. All that mattered was getting Jesus to her as soon as possible, or else she would not make it. As Jesus was speaking, Jairus' worst fears came true when someone from his house came and told him that his daughter did, in fact, die, and that it was too late for Jesus to heal her and to stop bothering him. You see, this person from Jairus' house thought that Jesus could only heal living people. Now that she had died, all hope was lost. When Jesus heard this, he told Jairus to not be afraid, just to believe that she would still be healed. Think about the emotional roller coaster that Jairus is going through. He already believed that his daughter was healed. That wasn't a problem. But now she was dead. Now Jesus was saying to keep believing, even though every indication was that it was too late. To the credit of Jairus, he continued to believe, as hard as that must have been. Do any of you remember the story of John Smith, a 14-year-old teenager from Kansas City? Well, if you've seen the movie Breakthrough, it was based off his story. In 2015, he was playing on a frozen lake with several of his friends when he fell through the ice. He spent 15 minutes underwater, which that alone would be almost impossible to survive, not even thinking about the frigid temperatures. And once he was rescued altogether, he went without a pulse for 45 minutes. According to doctors, this isn't possible. Our body can't live without a pulse for 45 minutes. 
But they fought to save him, and after 45 minutes had passed, they decided that all hope was lost. The doctors called his mother into the room to say her final goodbyes. But instead of saying goodbye, she pleaded before God that God would send the Holy Spirit down to cause her son to start breathing again. And to the shock of the medical staff, they started to, the machine started to sense a pulse. But you see, even after this miracle, even after he was stabilized, doctors said too much damage had been done to his brain and his body and that he would not survive the night. Again, his mother refused to give in and continued praying, believing that God could heal her son. While it was a long road, her son did experience a full recovery with no brain damage or damage to his body. At every stage of the story, his mother was told to say goodbye or to lose hope. But she didn't. She refused. Instead, she believed. She believed that God would save her son. The story is a modern example of what we read in today's text, and it helps us to see it in a different, more modern light. While they both were dealing with physical healing, it doesn't mean that this is the only thing we should believe God will do for us. We should believe in God and his ability to provide for us, to care for us, to love us, and to guide us. Are any of you, do any of you have the type of personality where you like to have your future planned out, or at least an idea of what it might look like? Well, I'm that person. So picture me when I was 16 years old trying to figure out what I was going to do after graduation. I loved geography. That was my favorite subject in high school. I was just convinced that that was what I was going to do with my life, so I decided I was going to be a geography teacher. Loved geography, thought I'd be good at it. But later on, over a course of events that was set into motion, I was able to go on a mission trip to Poland. And while I was on this mission trip, God told me as clear as day that he wanted me to serve him in ministry. And so when I returned home, I applied to a Bible college to pursue this calling, and I went to a school 26 hours away in another country. And so I felt that calling. God was placing it on my heart, but I had to believe that that's what he was telling me to do. God will direct our path. He will tell us where he wants us to go, and he'll tell us what he wants us to do. But we have to believe that he is guiding us. That when he calls us to do something, that he will continue to be with us. It might not always make sense, and it might not be something we ever thought we would do or want to do. But if we do it, if we step out in faith and believe that God is with us, we will do great things for his kingdom. We will experience great blessings that otherwise we would have never known. So what circumstance is it that God is calling you to? What is it that you need to believe that God will do in your life here today? My second point this morning comes from verses 51 through 53 and is don't let others distract you. As we go back to our text, we can see in verse 51 where Jairus and Jesus are arriving at his home where his daughter had left. By the time they had arrived, there were already mourners outside the home weeping and wailing. I didn't realize this, but during that time, there were people where their occupation was to be a professional mourner. So they were literally getting paid to stand outside this home and weep and wail. And so in Jewish culture, they wasted no time or energy in sharing or showing their grief. Oftentimes, the body of the deceased would be buried the same day after being prepared for burial. 
so they weren't wasting any time. So again, go back to this roller coaster that Jairus is going on. Your daughter's so sick, you go to Jesus to heal her, but then your daughter dies. Jesus tells you to keep believing, in which you do, but then you arrive at your house to see a huge crowd of people wailing and weeping. I mean, imagine this sight. Even if you're already believing, you'd at least be a little discouraged upon seeing this. So even though these people were technically doing the right thing, that's what they're supposed to be there doing, it was creating a major distraction from what was about to happen. Going back to the story of John Smith, I already said there were many people that doubted his survival. Most of them were the doctors. But at one point in the story, even his father struggled with whether or not his son would pull through. Again, this wasn't intentional, but these were all distractions that could have very easily let the mother waver in her faith or question her own belief. But we know from her story she continued to have faith that her son would pull through. When I decided to go to a college 26 hours away, it didn't make sense to a lot of people. Pretty much everyone my age was graduating and they were going to colleges within 45 minutes to an hour of where I'd lived. They couldn't understand why in the world I'd go to a college in another country so far away as well as to why in the world I'd go to college for ministry. These were all things that were distractions from what God was doing and calling me to do. In the same way, we'll have so many things in our lives that can be distractions for us. Every one of us is going through something different. We're all at different places in our relationship with God, and we're all facing different challenges and questions about life, as well as what God wants for us. But one thing we all have in common is that there will always be things that will come along and become distractions. These are things that cause us to lose our focus on God, things that come between us and God, things that cause us to lose sight of our first love. If you are here last week, you'll know what I'm talking about. So how do we prevent these distractions from distracting us? Well, in verse 51, we can see how Jesus handled it. He simply told the mourners to be quiet, for the girl wasn't dead, but only asleep. To which they laughed, because again, they already knew that she was dead. Jesus then went into the house, taking with him Peter, James, and John, as well as the girl's parents. Jesus separated the parents from the people outside. He put distance between himself and the distraction. In addition to this, he only allowed a few people who he knew believed and had faith to come in with him. So what should we do? Well, first, we should put distance between us and the people or things that are causing a distraction for us. Is there a particular person who's always putting doubt in your mind, or are they always questioning what you're doing for God? I'm not saying to just forget about them or cut them out of your life, because we know God is calling us to show them love. But what I'm saying is to put some distance between you and that distraction, so that you can focus on what God is doing. The second thing is to find people who are the opposite of a distraction. People who will have your back, who will support you, who will cry with you, who will laugh with you. These are the people who, when you're feeling down or doubting God, will lift you back up and steer you back towards God. God doesn't want us to be alone. He wants us to have relationships that foster growth in him. And if you don't have a person like this in your life, ask God to send you one. While at the same time, ask God who you can be that person for. 
The last thing I want to mention from this point is how Jesus said she is not dead, but asleep. And we know that she was actually dead, for her spirit left her body. But yet Jesus is still saying that she's asleep. And this isn't the first time that Jesus is referring to a believer that passed away as simply sleeping. It's an image he's used several times throughout the New Testament when describing the death of believers. In John 11, 11, we see where Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. In Acts 7, 59 through 60, when referencing Stephen being stoned, it says he fell asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. All this to say is sleep is a normal experience. It's something we do every night, or at least it's something we really should be doing every night. But it's not something we fear. We don't normally have a fear of going to sleep. In the same way, death is not something we should fear either. Warren Wearsby writes, It is the body that sleeps, not the spirit. For the spirit of the believer goes to be with Christ. The mourners laughed at Jesus because they knew the girl was dead. They failed to see who Jesus really was. That he was the resurrection and the life, and that he was able to bring this girl back to life once again. So it already happened. They didn't remember how Jesus raised the widow's son from the dead. They didn't remember how he told John the Baptist that the dead would be raised. They thought Jesus was being foolish when really it was they who were being foolish. But Jesus simply shut them down and did not allow them inside. In the same way, we need to shut down the distractions in our lives, whether it be a person, a thing, or a habit. Shut it down and don't allow it to become a wedge between you and God. Do not allow it to become a distraction. Stay focused on Jesus and believing in his promises and growing stronger in your faith with him each and every day you live. My third point is that Jesus always fulfills his promises to us. Verses 54 and 55 say, But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to get her something to eat. So again, going back to this roller coaster that Jairus is going through, this is the last major hurdle, or last major thing he's facing. He's going into the home after Jesus told everyone to be quiet. He's still having probably the weeping and wailings probably still going through his head. And Jesus just simply walks up to his daughter and says, get up. It's not this big dramatic prayer. It's not this big dramatic ceremony. Jesus literally just says, get up. And then she gets up. Imagine what you'd be going through after all that. Your daughter just getting up from the dead. Imagine the sight that that would be. And so, verse 56 says, her parents were astonished. I know I certainly would be. With such a simple command, Jesus brought the girl back to life and showed the power he had over death. While the story is about Jesus literally bringing someone back to life, it also points to how Jesus saves the sinner from a spiritual death and gives them new life in him. Jesus very easily and more than likely did perform more miracles than this. God recorded three specific resurrections that Jesus performed. And in each of these times, the person being raised from the dead is giving some kind of evidence of life. In Luke 7.15, we talked about the widow's son who was raised from the dead. 
and he began to speak. In today's passage, Jairus' daughter walked and ate food. In John 11:44, Lazarus was loosened from his grave cloths. When a lost sinner is raised from the dead, you can tell by their speech, their walk, their appetites, as well as their change of clothes. Because you cannot hide life. When we are brought back to life spiritually through Christ, we are filled with the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. This is what allows us to die to our old life and have a new one in him. It's what allows us to be transformed in him in a process we call sanctification. This also points back to some of my previous messages about bearing fruit. When we have the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, we will naturally bear fruit as evidence of our new life in God. Just like Jairus' daughter got up and walked, we should get up and walk as well. We should show others the redemptive and healing power of Christ that is work at work in our lives. So when you talk to people, when you interact with people, do they see life within you? Do they see the power of Christ working through the way you talk, the way you act, the way you live out each and every day? Do they see living life in you, or do they see emptiness? Now, there's a few other people that witnessed this miracle they haven't talked about yet. Peter, James, and John, who were all in the room when Jesus healed this girl. There would be three occasions when it would be just these three men having a significant encounter with Jesus. This would be the first, the second would be on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the third in Garden of Gethsemane. Campbell Morgan points out that each of these events has something to do with death and they teach valuable lessons about Jesus in death. In the home of Jairus, they learn that Jesus is victorious over death. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they learn that he would be glorified in his death. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, they saw that Jesus was surrendered to death. James would be the first out of these three men, followed by Peter, whose death had been predicted earlier by Jesus, and John being the last to die. All three of these men needed these lessons just as we need them here today. At the end of verse 56, Jesus tells the parents not to tell anyone what happened. But even without the parents telling anyone, you can only imagine how this news would spread. I mean, half the neighborhood was just outside the house weeping and wailing over her death. What do you think they're going to think when they see this girl walking around the neighborhood? And so they're going to tell people. There are two things we can learn from this. The first is what I spoke about before. Do our actions show that of a person who is brought back to life? A person who is full of life, full of the Holy Spirit? Or do our actions show of someone who is not full of life? Now, the second part is try and put yourself in the place of these mourners. You see this girl walking through the neighborhood. What's the first thing you're going to do? Okay. Yeah, you, you might ask her how she got that way, how she came to life. Or another thing you probably would want to do is go call your neighbor or call your friend who was mourning with you a little bit earlier and be like, hey, that person we were mourning for is walking down the street. Yeah, you'd want to tell people. And so everyone I see, you'd run around, you'd talk to people. Nowadays, you probably just post it on Facebook or something like that. <laughs> but you'd tell anyone and everyone you knew. It's not every day someone raises from the dead. 
And so when we give our hearts over to God and experience this new life, we should be just as excited to share this news as if we'd witness a person being brought back to life. Share what God has done for you, how he's moved in your life, how he's provided for you, for your family. Share what he's doing with you now. Don't hide it. Share it with anyone who will listen, with your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, the person you pass walking down the street. God gave you a testimony not to hide, but to share. So be bold and share what God has done with others so that they can experience this new life for themselves. The bottom line this morning is to simply just believe, don't let others distract you, and that Jesus will always fulfill his promises. My first application point this morning is that you can have a new life in Christ. If you're not a believer, or maybe as we've been going through this passage, you're questioning whether or not you're a believer, you can have this new life too. Jesus wants to come into your life. He wants you to be able to live with him forever and spend an eternity with him. If you've never dedicated your life to Christ, if that's something you want to do, we're going to take just a couple minutes now and give you the opportunity. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to give you an opportunity. If you, want, if you haven't given your life over to Christ and this is something you would like to do now, just go ahead and raise your hand. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this new life that we have made available to us, God. God, I just ask that you would help us to take advantage of this new life, that you would help us to be bold, and that you would help us to share this with all we encounter, God. And God, if anyone's watching online or if anyone is wanting to make this decision, then I ask, just ask that, you would that they would pray with me now, God, that they would just start out by saying, God, I'm a sinner. I know that I have sin in my life and that that sin is separating me from you, God. I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for me, God, that your son gave his life for me, and that through your son's death, I'm able to be with you again. So God, I just ask for your forgiveness for any sin that's in my life. I just ask for your Holy Spirit to just descend on me right now and fill my heart and transform me into a new life, God, dead to the old. In your name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, if you're watching online and you prayed that prayer, just ask that you would just tell us so that we can celebrate with you and that we can just set you on some not more steps going forward. My second and final application point this morning is to have faith that God is there for you. So in our, my first point, I spoke about, Jesus, about Jairus believing that Jesus could heal his daughter. I also spoke about believing that God will direct our paths and calling us to do things that might not make sense or might not even seem possible. So this week, or even this afternoon, ask God what it is he wants you to do. Ask him who it is he wants you to tell about him or who it is even that he wants you to invite to back to church Sunday in a couple weeks. And then after this, simply believe. Have faith and believe that the same one who healed Jairus' daughter, who healed John Smith, has the power to heal those whom you love. He has the power to use you and equip you to do great things for his kingdom, things that are only possible through the strength that he gives you. Let us pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your words this morning from Luke. I thank you for the testimony that we're able to just study even this many years later from Jairus, God, how he was able to step out, how he was able to risk so much by going to your son, God, how he was able to have faith and believe that you would heal his daughter even when it seemed like it wasn't possible. God, I just ask that as we leave here, you would help us to have that same faith. I ask that you would help us to be bold in sharing our testimonies and in sharing what you are doing in our lives. God, I just ask all these things in your name. Amen.